Hey, thanks for joining us today. We're going to carry on in our series. It's actually the last one in the series called Mighty, where we've been looking at what it means for God to be sovereign, to be king of kings, to be our stronghold or refuge. And today, I think it's really important for us to focus on what it meant for him or means for him to be redeemer. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Now, the beauty of the book of Isaiah is that Isaiah has within it uh, an awful lot of actionables. There are things in there for us to live into, but there's also a lot of prophecy uh, in the book of Isaiah. And specifically, we're going to be looking at one of those prophetic verses. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59. And I'm going to read verse 20 just as a baseline for today. But Isaiah 59 verse 20. And if you don't know where the book of Isaiah is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents, just go ahead and put it and use it because people put it there for a reason, right? All right, Isaiah 59, verse 20, here's what it says. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repented or repent of their sins. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for today and I thank you for our time to look into your word. And Lord, as we're kind of all over the place in your word today, may we have eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that are open to you today. In your name I pray. Amen. So as mentioned, we've coming to a close here now with our series on Mighty. And the first few uh, sermons that we've had on this have been on the idea that, well, Jesus is sovereign. He's in control of all things. The idea that he is king of kings, that he is the ruler of all things. All things belong to him in that sense. And, and the idea of the sovereignty, he is the one who sustains all things. Uh, but he's also a mighty refuge in that when we are in the heat of battle, we're able to kind of go into his care and be protected, right? Like in that mighty refuge, the wall goes up once we come in and nothing can penetrate it. And so we're safe, we're protected, we're taken care of. And that's a beautiful image. But one of my favorite images is, is this idea of the Redeemer. The one who is able to take care of his own in such a way that he is able to bring back his own to where they belong. And so what we could say then is that Jesus is the redeemer of all things. He is the redeemer of all things. Now, often when we think of the term redeemer, we think of it primarily from the perspective of just dealing with people, right? Uh, we see the idea that, um, that he redeems us from our sins and that kind of stuff. There's the language in the scriptures of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, and we'll, we'll define these things just very shortly. What I want us to do is understand in connection with this particular passage in Isaiah, that in Isaiah 59, we see people walking away from justice. We see people walking away from truth. They're walking away from um, righteousness. All of these things have just kind of fallen away. And the world seems bleak and dark at this time. Uh, and, and so these things are nowhere to, farm, to be found. And, and it's this idea that there needs to be this Redeemer that comes in and takes care of business. And so Jesus being the kinsman redeemer, like I said before, is something that we look at a lot. But the overarching principle and language of Scripture is that Jesus is not just the redeemer of people. He's actually redeemer of all of creation, which certainly includes people, and people are one of the primary focuses of that. But it's not at the exclusion of everything else. He is the redeemer over all of creation. And so that's kind of what I want to look at today, because the... 
redemption that restores all that was lost from the fall uh, puts this planet back into the hands of the owner, puts us back into our original state. And so it's interesting to me that redemption in the, in the language of Scripture is a language of restoration. It is a language that involves this reversal of everything that happened at the fall. Now that's really cool. The reason I say it's really cool is because often when we think of what Jesus did for us, and certainly in his second coming, what ultimately happens is that we tend to really just think about ourselves. We, th we think about the individual impact. We think about what happens to humanity. But there's a grander story at play here. And it is the story of what does it mean for the creator to redeem the totality of his creation. And this is a pretty interesting thing. So let's talk about some of these words that we've just used, the Christianese, we could say. Uh, what does the Redeemer mean? What is a Redeemer? Well, a Redeemer, if I'm going to put it at just like the simplest definition and, and recognize that there's layers to this, but the simplest definition of a Redeemer is, or what it means to redeem, is, is to buy back. To buy back that which was sold, lost, whatever it was, to get it back, to buy it back, to pay the price in order to be able to get it back. The idea of the kinsman redeemer that we mentioned earlier is the idea that this is a person who is normally a close relative who's able to do these things on the behalf of the person who can't. So for example, if I lost something and I couldn't afford to buy it back, my kinsman redeemer could buy that back on my behalf. Or if it's a property that's, for example, within my family, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, um, and let's say I pass away, that kinsman redeemer is still able to access that property on behalf of my family and get that back for us. So that's the idea of the kinsman redeemer. So they, they basically, they, they pay the debt to purchase back that which was lost. And what was required for someone to be a redeemer, this is really interesting. In order to be able to be a redeemer, you had to be able to, uh, pay the price. You had to be willing to pay the price. And in some cases, you had to also have the power to be able to take back the thing that was purchased because there were those who would still attempt to hang on to it. So you had to be able to take it by force if needed. That to me is interesting. And so that brings us to something biblically, I think that we need to understand more fully so that we get a stronger picture of what this redeeming language actually looks like. So we're going to dive into a book of the Bible that I think a lot of people try to avoid. It's the book of Leviticus. Now, the book of Leviticus is Moses uh, giving the laws to Israel. And in those laws, there are laws about health. There are laws about um, property. There's laws about relationships. There's just all kinds of different sorts of laws within it. And it, all of these laws are intended to be able to build up the community of believers within Israel and, and make them a set-apart nation identifiably. And so how they function together matters. So when we go into, before we look at some of the other verses I want to look at in Isaiah, this particular piece is important. And so let's take a look at uh, what it says about redeeming land, you could say, um, in the book of Leviticus. So if you want to track along, Leviticus chapter 25, looking at verses 23 to 28, this language is important. Here's what it says. 
the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. So this is God talking and he's saying, listen, the, the, the land that you have, you don't get to sell that permanently because it ain't yours to sell. It's mine. This is my land. You're here as foreigners and strangers. So throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. This is the kinsman redeemer idea. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one whom they sold it to. So there's this transaction that takes place that honors the fact that, look, I sold it to you at one point. It was worth this much at that point. Let's negotiate its current value and I'll pay you. Uh, they can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay, what is sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. And it will be returned in the Jubilee and they will go back to their property. And so the year of Jubilee is like every 50 years is that, is that particular year of Jubilee they're talking about. So here's a summary. God gave his people, the Israelites, the land of Israel. And then each tribe of Israel was given a different particular uh, piece of land. And, you know, it was allowed at a portion. The land cannot be sold permanently because the land actually, in fact, belongs to God and the people of God reside in it. And so there are rules about how they are to interact with that. And, and God knew that people were going to have some difficulties. They are going to run into all kinds of difficulties. Maybe there's going to be hardships. And so there's the chance that they're going to lose their land. And so when they do lose their land, so for example, if I live in Israel and I've fallen into some hard times, okay? And that thought's certainly not outside the realms of possibility, right? Like we see it all the time nowadays as well. God put three measures in place to be able to protect people from losing their land permanently. Should I later have the means to repossess the land or repurchase the land, I could do so at a negotiated rate that is fair based on the inflation and the property value increases and that kind of stuff. So I've lost the land, sold to someone else. If I ever got the means to pay it back or buy it back, I could. Or a close relative could do that for me. And that's called the kinsman redeemer. They could pay that price for me. Uh, they can get it back. And if they had the means and the willingness to pay, well, the land could be redeemed and purchased back and then it's back in my possession. If my brother, for example, is not willing or did not have the means to be able to pay it back and no other relative was able to pay the price, then there was this year of Jubilee that would come around every 50 years. And every 50 years, that land would then go back into my family unit. Now, here's the interesting thing that comes along with that. I may not be alive when the next 50 years comes. And so if I'm not alive when the next 50 years comes, the land gets returned to my closest relative that is then alive. And so there's always this idea of the land coming back into the possession of the person that it is to belong to. And in this case, this would be one of the tribes. This would be an individual. These are the scenarios that we find out. Now, why do we have these laws? Why are these laws even important in the first place? Well, this law concerning the redemption of the land points to something I believe that's actually a great deal bigger. And that's the redemption of the entire planet Earth. And all of creation, and not actually just the planet Earth, but we're talking about like every, every single planet 
in the universe, every, every molecule in the universe, all of creation, right? This is the redemption of all of creation and places it under the care of its rightful owner. So the Leviticus passage, in light of the redemption of the entire planet, what we see is that just as the land of Israel is God's and not, in fact, actually Israel's, Scripture tells us that the entire planet is God's. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 and 2 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. This is one of the passages we used earlier in our series to talk about God as being sovereign, and he is above all these things. And so just as God gave dominion and possession of the land to Israel, but not ultimate ownership, he gave dominion and rulership to mankind over the earth. And ultimate ownership remains with him, but man was given dominion. And what I mean by that is that in the account of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, are told to, uh, that they have dominion over the land, that they are to subdue the land, and they are to um, multiply, right? And so there's this idea that they are responsible for the land. They are, to some extent, they are in possession of the land, but they are not the ultimate owners of the land. Adam and Eve fell, and when they did, all of creation fell with them. All of it. Disharmony and conflict have just kind of resulted ever since. And so from the first born person, by that we mean first reproduced person through human means, Cain murdered his own brother. So from that point all the way to the chaos that we see kind of in our world today, there is this evidence that the fall of all of creation and not just mankind is absolutely evident. And so God provides a way through a Redeemer to buy back the land that had been lost. And so he provided a Redeemer to pay the price to purchase all things back to God once more. And the price was paid on the cross for all of humanity to be redeemed if they would believe and accept the provision on their behalf, right? So we know that the price was paid by Jesus to redeem people. The price was also paid to redeem all of creation and undo the consequences of the curse that were placed on it. And that involves the ground, the plants, and the trees, and the animal kingdom, and all of humanity. It shall all be redeemed and returned to its rightful ultimate owner, the way that God had intended it when the true king comes. There's just one problem with that. One little hurdle, caveat, hiccup. It, is, it was possible that when the close relative redeemed some property, that they would not actually take possession of that property for some time. They may decide to leave it for a future date and take control of it later. And so, of course, others may have started to carry on using it unlawfully. They were, you know, you could say ancient Near Eastern squatters, right? <laughs> They're just taking over the space. And, um, and so, in the meantime, when this true ruler returned, sometimes they had to use force to get the people off of the land that wasn't theirs to be there in the first place. And so, this is where we pick up the story again back in the book of Isaiah. Because when you, when you talk about what it means for God to redeem the land and to, to redeem all of his creation, and we come back into Isaiah, like this is what's portrayed 
in the closing of Isaiah 59, the idea of the Redeemer coming. Here's what it says. Uh, Isaiah, if you still have that open, Isaiah 59, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 20. He, and tell me if this language sounds familiar, because this is going to be helpful for the next series that we're walking into. He put on his righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives all along. And then we come to our passage in verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Now this particular passage is showing how Jesus is preparing to take back his possession from his enemies. He is the Redeemer. He is coming to Zion with wrath for his enemies. And so he's going to take it by force and drive them out. I said earlier that the Redeemer had to be able to pay the price, that they had to be willing to pay the price. But they also had to have the power to take the price. Well, Jesus is willing. He was able. And he did so when he came 2,000 years ago. And this scripture reveals that he also has the power to do so, to take the possession of that which he has redeemed. And even if it means taking it by force, And again, that includes not only people, but the entirety of all of creation. It is His. He owns it. And so a similar passage that you could find talking about this language is is Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. Now, this is the uh, Apostle John. This is the uh, the one, the apostle whom Jesus loved is, ta- is the way that he's often referred to. Uh, he is one of the sons of thunder, which is just a great name. Um, but he is the w- one of the three that Jesus spent most of his time with. And so in his later years in life, he has this revelation from Jesus that he then writes down. And so in chapter 5 of this particular revelation, uh, verses 1 through 6, he writes this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing there in the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders, The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And I'm like, okay, what does this mean? Well, I I believe one of the most important principles within Scripture uh, in terms of how you handle Scripture is that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. It's one of the rules of interpretation, you could say. And so we've got to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so when we're looking at 
how to answer what these scrolls are all about, specifically this particular scroll. The notion is actually taken from Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 15. Now, I'm not going to read all of it, but I will sum it up. And this is a key passage in helping us understand what Revelation chapter 5 is really actually all about. So Judah, which is one of the kingdoms, okay? So Israel was split into two kingdoms, and, and Judah was one of them. And so Judah was under siege by the Babylonians led by King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar, that, that's a name that many people who have some history within Christianity are familiar with. But King Nebuchadnezzar is the guy that Daniel dealt with, um, you know, in a variety of ways. Um, you also had uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, some people refer to them as Rakshak and Benny, if you remember your VeggieTales. And so he's going to be under, he's talking about the Babylonians coming, their King Nebuchadnezzar coming, and Zedekiah is the king of Judah at the time. And Zedekiah doesn't really like Jeremiah because Jeremiah is talking about the idea that Judah is going to fall to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he does what any king who doesn't like the message from the prophet does. He puts Jeremiah in this prison-like scenario. He's stuck. And he attacks the messenger, Jeremiah, right? Locks him up. And while he's locked up, Jeremiah's cousin comes around and he, and he says, hey, you know what? Like, I got this land that you should buy. I got this property for you. Now, God had already instructed Jeremiah to buy this land. And so it was this expression of his faith to go ahead and buy this land, believing that he's going to come back at a later date to be able to possess the land, or at the very least, his family will be able to come back at a later date to possess the land. And so this is an act of faith on his behalf. And so when the Redeemer paid the price for the land, the what you found is that there would be this um, document created. It would be a scroll. It was a deed that was on this scroll and it was written on and then it was sealed up. It's basically the title to the property. And so in the inside was written uh, what the purchaser had redeemed. In other words, what they had take what they would be taking possession of. On the outside of the scroll were the conditions that needed to be met in order to be able to open the scroll and redeem what was on the inside. And so this document was incredibly important because it proved who had the right to the land. You hear that? This thing was rolled up. On the inside, it said what they had the right to possession of. On the outside, it was all the conditions that needed to be met in order to be able to possess that land. Really important document. So it had to be protected and was stored in a safe place. And so Jeremiah, in his current situation, the Babylonians are coming in and they're about to take control of the entire city. And Jeremiah himself was actually later taken to Egypt where he was held in exile there. And he never got back to Judah. But part of the instructions that he got from God was that he was to put this scroll, this deed, this uh, sealed document into a jar of clay so that it would be able to be kept for years and years to come. And then that way, it, that deed wouldn't be lost and it would be able to be retrieved by a close relative to be able to take possession of that land. So that's a mouthful, but that brings us into that background of Revelation chapter 5. And here's why. The scroll or book that is opened in heaven contains the title deed to the earth. And before all the judgments can begin, we get this scene in heaven where the true owner must be able to be found. 
And so here we have the scroll and written on the front and the back, but it's sealed with seven seals. And so you ask earlier, okay, so what was the sealed scroll about? Well, just as we see in the book of Jeremiah, it is the title deed to property. He owns it all. Except this one is the title deed to all of creation, people and animals and land and plants and stars and galaxies, like all of it. And it's stored in an incredibly secure place. It is stored in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And if there's something in his hand, you can't just grab it from his hand. He's the one on the throne. So who's worthy to take this title deed? Who's the one who has the right as the redeemer to open this deed? Who's paid the price to buy back this world and all that it contains? There seems to be no one. There is no one that can step forward and take possession of the world. And the apostle John sees this and he begins to weep. And in verses 5 and 6, again, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Jesus is the lamb. He is the one who is worthy to open the seals. And yet, as John looked, he, he didn't see a lion. He saw this lamb. And of course, we understand that to be Jesus. When he came the first time 2,000 years ago, he came as a lion. He says, look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came to die. And for that was the price required to pay for your sin and my sin. You see the conditions that were written on the outside? These were part of those conditions. Somebody had to be able to pay that. And so before leaving, though, he promised that he would return. And when he does return, he's going to come back, not as a lamb, but as a lion. And so he purchased it. And much like you see in the book of uh, Jeremiah, that, that there's this purchase that can take place that a later date can be, then be taken possession of in terms of ultimate ownership and, 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 and just hanging on to from that, that point forward, you see that the King of Kings and the ruler of all things is the Redeemer, and He is the one that has the right to take possession of the earth. This is what it means for Jesus to be able to redeem all of it. He is the mighty Redeemer. And so He's not just the Redeemer of our lives. We hear that a lot. We understand that Jesus came to save us and, and to give us salvation. Absolutely. But Jesus is the ultimate redeemer of all of creation. All creation cries out for the coming of him. So here's how I want to sum this up. To conclude, God gave laws to the nation of Israel concerning the redemption of lost property because they give us a picture of the greater spiritual principle where a redeemer will come and redeem everything that Adam lost, like everything that Adam lost. He is the only one who is worthy. That is the one who we sing to worship his name. He is the only one that meets the requirements to be able to open the seal, to then take possession and redeem what is inside the seal. And ultimately, we have to understand this. We are not redeemed for our glory, not redeemed for our glory at all. 
though we've been prepared for it. Where we're not redeemed to build the church, though we're part of it. We are redeemed so that the Redeemer is glorified. It's about Him. And we're impacted by it. But it's about Him. So Jesus is going to return soon. We don't know exactly when. Today, we are closer than we were yesterday. And we need to live each day as if today is the day that He is going to return. So I truly believe in my heart of hearts, Jesus is returning soon. And He's going to claim His possession. He is going to redeem all of creation. And the only thing that we can really say in response to that is this incredible word, Maranatha. Our Lord is coming. And, and it's not just this solemn statement. This is, a, this is this exclaimed statement, this cheered statement, this, this army roaring. Our Lord is coming. That's going to be a good day. And we live each day as if that's the day that he's coming. So ask yourself, if you truly believe that Jesus is the redeemer of all things, that he's going to redeem not just people, but all of creation, how does that apply in your everyday living? Do you live each day with your interactions as though the redeemer is going to come in that moment? Do our priorities reflect that He's coming? Do our attitudes reflect that He's coming? Are we becoming more like Him? Or are we remaining more like us? Like All these things matter as we live each day as if that's the day of the return of the Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank You so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that as we've been in your word as we looked into um, not only the idea that you're the redeemer of us as individuals as people that you've established your church and these things are critically important but the language that you give us in scripture is that you're going to redeem all of your creation and bring us back to our original place i ask lord that we would choose to live a life worthy of the calling as paul tells us in ephesians that we would actively seek to become more like you daily and that we would live a life that reflects the fact that we believe that you can come in any moment. In your name I pray. Amen.